It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Hey, thank you, Chuck, and welcome, everybody. Mike Vaccaro with you, as always, in the front row. Behind the scenes, it's JR Quitman, our creator, producer, and director. Our thanks to those of you who have been watching, listening, subscribing as well. You have helped the Bone Crusher Smith episode go to 10,000 views. We thank you for that and certainly ask you to continue to watch, listen, and subscribe as well to this CLNS Media Network podcast. Well, we're up to episode number 56, back to football for that. Another Hall of Famer joins us here today, and it is Anthony Munoz, an offensive lineman, grew up in California, played at USC through some injuries, eventually drafted third overall by the Cincinnati Bengals, played in two Super Bowls, had an incredible career, and doing some incredible things now in Cincinnati with his foundation as well. Great story, great career, a lot to get to here today. Let's get right to it. Our guest, episode number 56, Hall of Famer, Anthony Munoz. Again, a Hall of Famer, such a, a great career that you've had. I want to touch on a lot of that, but we want to start at the very beginning for you. Uh, you grew up in Ontario, California, on the West Coast. Yep. What was life like for you? Take us back to, you know, the the early 1960s growing up out there. Well, you know, one of five kids. I had two older brothers, two younger sisters. My mom raised five by herself. Uh, she did everything. She worked two and three jobs. I mean, not just two and three jobs, but two and three uh, hard labor jobs to provide for our, you know, the five kids. Mom was mom, dad, and we knew she was the boss. <laughs> and uh, But, uh, you know, it was one of those things, never met my dad, uh, never had met, never will meet my dad. He was in and out of prison when I was growing up. Um, so, you know, my mom was one of 10. So we had a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins around, um, you know, and at a young age with my two, I, I had two older brothers. One was five, uh, two years older, one's eight years older. Uh, I since the last couple of years, I lost my one brother that's two years older than me. I still have the one that's eight years, but they were baseball players. And, and that's what I took to. Uh, that was my childhood dream was to be a baseball player in the, in the major leagues. So at the age of six, I started playing with both of them. By seven, eight years old, I was playing pretty competitive baseball at nine years old, uh, playing. Uh, so, you know, I saw that God had blessed me in the baseball uh, area. And so that was my childhood dream. So as long as I could play baseball during the school year, during the summer, uh, but mom taught us work ethic and responsibility. We had that, you know, during the school year, in order to go out and play sports after school, we had to do our homework. And during the summer, uh, you know, in California, you cannot not only play two games, sometimes play three games a day. Uh, but we had to do our chores. She taught us how, I mean, how to be responsible, how to clean house, how to wash clothes, how to wash dishes, how to cook, how to iron clothes. So we had to do that, the five of us to to survive. So that was my childhood. Again, we didn't have a whole lot, never had a car, uh, didn't have a whole lot financially, but it didn't matter because we had support. We were loved. And I could go out and play baseball whenever I wanted to, especially in Southern California. Yeah, it's, it's got to be great to have that that great foundation, as you said, your, your mom and what she did for you. Do you still carry a lot of those things that she taught you through your life, even the, you know, uh, though you're older right now? I really do. You know, I mentioned work ethic. It's not like she sat her five kids down and taught us work, work, what work ethic was. All we had to do is watch her walk over the, uh, the railroad tracks about six in the morning. She was off to work. And when she walked back, you know, uh, you know, three, four o'clock, took a little rest, cooked dinner that we learned work ethic, responsibility. Hey, like I said earlier, 
you want to play baseball, you don't play football, basketball during school or in the summer, you had to do your chores, you had to do your homework. Um, yeah, those are valuable lessons. I mean, the discipline of cooking for each other, of making sure we took care of each other, washing our clothes. And, you know, she did a lot, but there's some stuff she couldn't do because of her work schedule. So, yeah, even now as a, as a, as a husband, as a dad, and now as a grandfather, work ethic, responsibility through my childhood, high school, college, pro days, and now I've been retired. I can tap in to what I learned at home from mom and uh, my aunts and uncles, and it's uh, it very valuable. Well, again, it played a great role in, in your sports career. You talked about baseball. When did uh, football start to become a, you know, something that you gravitated to? Well, you know, I have to say I was a little disappointed at first because the strength on, on the baseball field was my arm. I was a third baseman pitcher from the age of six, seven uh, through high school. So we played a lot of sandlot football out in the street in the fields. But I, I was a product of flag football at the age of eight years old. I played flag football from eight years old to 13. That was seventh, eighth grade. And I was a quarterback because of the strength of my arm. And, uh, you know, so I had all these fast wide receivers and I could throw the ball a mile. Uh, so I played quarterback. So when I got to high school, I'd never played tackle football. So I figured my buddies are playing tackle football. I'm going to play freshman football. So the first time I put the pads on and I had the old two bar mask, I was going to be the freshman quarterback because that's all I ever played. Well, as I ran over to the quarterbacks, when they divided us up in position, the, the head coach looked at me and said, Anthony, what are you doing here? I said, Coach, I'm going to be your quarterback. He goes, no, nah, I don't think so. I said, what? I said, that's all I've played is quarterback. Um, so I say it's a little disappointing because I had to go back in and see Henry, the equipment manager. He changed my face mask and he made me an offensive lineman. The first day I was a little upset. The second day it got better because I was probably one of the bigger kids on not only as a freshman, but on campus. And I got to, you know, uh, I wasn't real aggressive, but I got to physically, you know, kind of dominate some younger guys on the defensive side. And uh, I started to enjoy the offensive line. So I have to say freshman year, first year tackle, it didn't go very well at first. But uh, as I look back, I think the the head coach, freshman head coach knew something by putting me as an offensive defensive lineman. Yeah, from, from disappointment to the Hall of Fame, right? He, yeah, he knew exactly. something. There's always a coach that knows something more than the kid does and, exactly. and certainly set you on a, a great path. Tell us about the recruitment. What was that like for you? Eventually you go to, to USC, you play for John Robinson there, the head coach. What was right. your recruitment like? This was back in the, you know, the mid seventies. Right. Well, yeah, I started getting heavily recruited. Uh, you know, I started playing football my junior year. I'm, you know, six, six, you know, two ninety. I'm playing both ways. Uh, and of course, growing up 40 miles from the USC campus, you know, watching those great USC football teams. Uh, I always had a dream of going to USC not knowing that I'd ever get a chance because, uh, you know, financially, like I said, we didn't have a whole lot. And I wasn't uh, – I didn't totally understand, the, you know, the scholarships and things like that. But it started my sophomore, junior year, and they started coming after me. And really, all the schools across the country did. But one of the things that I did early on, and I'm thankful I did, I look at these young men that, you know, have all these schools that they're, they're courting and they're considering. I said right away, I'm a big USC fan. If they offer me, I'm there. And I'm not going to take any other trips because if I take a trip to, let's say, Notre Dame, that's a trip that somebody else might have had that seriously considered Notre Dame. So I just said, you know, when they started recruiting me and they came after me heavily, I said, uh, this is a place I want to go. Uh, being a football guy, you know, at that time they were recruiting me to come to school and play football. But I wanted a chance to play baseball in college, too, because in, in high school I was a three 
time all state in baseball and two in football. So baseball was still the sport I was excelling in. And most of the colleges use that as a recruiting uh, tool. Hey, you can come here on a football scholarship, but we'll let you play baseball. That was something that USC did. That They had track record of letting guys do that. So that even added to the attraction of going to USC. So once, and you have to understand, you mentioned John Robinson. I did play four years for John Robinson, but John McKay started to recruit me. And I mean, he, you know, had won the national championship in 72 and 74. And this was 75 when I was being recruited. So uh, he started, but then he got the head coaching job at Tampa Bay. There was a little dead period there before they hired John Robinson. So you better believe UCLA stepped it up. They tried to come in and, uh, and do a full court press. But once they hired John Robinson, the reconnection was made. It was pretty much sealed. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, and I tell people, I don't know if it was because of the tradition of their football program or because of Traveler and Tommy Trojan, the big white horse, circling the track every time they scored. That was very impressive in that marching band. But, uh, you know, so I'm thankful that I went to USC. And, uh, yeah, so it, it was one of those things that uh, they started, they offered me, and I said, where do I sign? Yeah, so it's great tradition, as you said, John McKay to John Robinson. And then for baseball, Rod Dato, a, a Hall of Fame baseball coach, as you said, you were on that team. You were on the championship team, national championship team in 1978 as a pitcher as well. Do you remember those times fondly oh, as well? Yeah, vividly. In fact, uh, you know, the crazy thing about it, a lot of people have a tendency to look at my NFL career and think that there was accolades and pretty much decorated as a college player, which I wasn't. You know, I had four years, three years. I had knee operations in college. I only played one healthy football season. That healthy season, I played baseball. They were going to let me play the entire time there, but because of injury, I played one year. That was actually as a freshman on the baseball team, but my sophomore year in school. And it just happened that that was, I believe, uh, Coach Dato's 11th or 12th national championship. I got to play varsity the whole year. I got to make all the trips. And, of course, made the trip to Omaha, Nebraska, where we ended up winning it. And uh, so it was one year baseball and one ring, which – but more importantly were the relationships that I established and the opportunity to play for Rod Dato, who was an amazing coach, kind of like John McKay and John Robinson with the guys they coached in college and the guys that went on to, to be very successful in the NFL. You look at the major league baseball players that Rod Dato coached and it's a who's who of major league uh, all-stars. So I was thankful I had that one year to play. And uh, like I said, uh, a couple of weeks ago at Super Bowl, we have a, a Merlin Olsen luncheon that uh, we do every Friday before the Super Bowl. There's about 50 Hall of Famers, maybe anywhere from 700 to 1,500 people. And one of my college baseball teammates, Bill Bordley, bought a table and I got to see some baseball players, uh, you know, guys that had played baseball in the major league sitting at this table. But uh, Bill Bordley was our stud pitcher that year we won it. Uh, he only played two years at SC and I like bragging on him. He was 26 and two in two years at USC, two-time All-American, number one pick for the Giants, pitched like eight, nine years in the major leagues. But I got to see him in uh, in Arizona Super Bowl week, and I've had a chance to stay connected with Bill. We've done some youth events, a couple in uh, Mexico, some in Southern California. But, yeah, I'm thankful I had a chance to play for, I mean, Hall of Fame yeah. uh, football coach as far, my, as far as I'm concerned, John Robinson, and a Hall of Fame uh, baseball coach in Rod Dato. And for a guy who grew up without that father figure, without your, your father in your life, were those guys that you gravitated to and, and even learned some more life lessons from beyond what your mom taught you? You know, they really were. And you, you talk about John Robinson and Rod Dato and my offensive line coach in, in college with Hudson Houck, who ended up coaching over 30 years in the NFL. 
But it's really interesting. We get back to the recruiting process, and I got to share this story. My senior year at Chafee High School in Ontario, California, if I didn't have interest in USC, I think I would have gotten a little pressure because my head baseball coach, USC Trojan, the head basketball coach that had retired, I think, uh, my freshman or sophomore year at Chafee was a USC grad, played basketball. The head track coach was a running back at USC. The head water polo coach was a USC grad. And a government teacher that I knew pretty well was a USC grad. So I had like five Trojans there on campus that, uh, you know, but I share that to say when I was seven years old, I met a gentleman that pitched on the 1961 USC national championship team, who was one of those five I just talked about. I met him. He was a head of parks and recreation. And then I would play three years for him at Chafee as a third baseman on the varsity baseball team. And that's Jim Seaman. He was a USC baseball player. He graduated, came and taught. Was a was the uh, Chafee High School baseball coach for I'd say probably 30 years. And he was one of those guys that took a lot of us that didn't have dads that he coached and was that positive male role model. A great baseball mind, but he taught us how to do it right. So, yeah, coaches, teachers, college, high school, um, they filled in and really gave me that foundation that mom was setting at home uh, in order to to move forward and, and really you know stay focused. Yeah, all the guests we talked to, so many great you know, benefits of sports in their, in their life. As you said, the coaches, the relationships, guys that you played with in 1978, you, you just get reconnected with at the, the Super Bowl as well. And, you know, let's go back to your, your football days at USC. As you said, you didn't have a, a great career because you were often injured. Yep. Was it a, a, when you, when you look back at it now, is it a frustrating career for yep. you? You know, USC teams were good. They were going to the Rose Bowl, but you were often injured during those trips. You know, it was frustrating at the time. I'd be lying if I said no. But the things that I learned, because, you know, playing four years of, of football, basketball, baseball in high school, four years, never, I can't remember missing a game because of an injury. So I was like, boom, 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 four years. And then to get to USC and really go through my first major knee operation, but not only one, but three, it, it taught me that, first of all, athletics can be taken away in one play, as it was for me three years, in, three out of four years, my freshman year, nine games of the season. My junior year, seven games into the season. My senior year, the second time we had the ball the first game of the season. So it taught me that I really needed to focus on other things, you know, school, uh, getting my body physically stronger and in better shape, uh, you know, relational. I got married my sophomore year in college, so my wife and I really hunkered down, and it was her and I against the world, you know. So there was a lot of lessons that I learned, and I look back, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, you know, I'm thankful that it worked out. But even if it hadn't worked out on the football field, I knew that I would be successful in whatever I did because of what we talked earlier, Mike, the work ethic, the responsibility. And just when something happens, you know, getting yourself back up as we do in life. And I don't care how good of a football player you were or are now, everybody gets knocked down. And it's just a matter of how you get back up, brush yourself off, use the support team around you. Because I've met a lot of very successful people and they I've met some that they say they're self-made. But if they get an accolade, the first thing they do when they get up to receive the accolade is they have two pages of people they thank. And I think to myself, hmm, how can you be self-made if you have all these people that have helped you along the journey? So, uh, But it's taught me a lot. It taught me a lot. And then once I got that chance in the NFL, it taught me that I had to stay on top of my conditioning and strength training and cardio and just take care of every aspect of my life. So uh, as I look at, you know, back to those four years, three Rose Bowl, I played in one. 
you know, one full season. Guys that I played with, I had a chance to, you know, block for a Heisman Trophy winner seven games and then I got hurt. Playing on a national championship team seven games and I got hurt. So some of the things I got, you know, I planned of doing when I was there, they didn't all happen. But I got to play in one Notre Dame and one UCLA game, which it was a highlight because that's what you look forward to when you go to USC. But, uh, you know, just the relationships that I established there and the memories. And, of course, the main thing is the work ethic and the focus of getting yourself back when you've been knocked down. Well, again, and you had a chance to get back senior season, go to the Rose Bowl against an undefeated Ohio State team. And running behind you, the late Charles White had a career night. What was that like to finally play in that Rose Bowl and to see your running back have such a great performance behind you? It was a highlight because, Mike, as we talked, I got hurt the second time we had the ball that first game. So I had surgery. I missed the entire season. And people had pretty much written me off. You know, I had a chance to come back and get a medical red shirt. But I was determined to play in a Rose Bowl with guys that I came into school with. You know, Keith Van Horn, Brad Buddy, Paul McDonald, Charles White, all these guys. In the, so I was like a madman, you know, after my surgery, rehabilitating, because I knew coming off that national championship game, I knew we'd go back to a Rose Bowl because we were loaded. We were ranked number one again. And sure enough, we won the Pac-10 at that time. Uh, for the third time, we're going back to our third Rose Bowl. So I had to go in and convince John Robinson to let me practice and, and get ready to play that game because um, they – and I could see the concern missing the entire season, but I had worked so hard rehabbing. I was in such great shape, cardiovascular strength wise, that I knew I was ready. And the doctor gave me the okay. So I went through every single practice leading up to that game. And when the starting lineup was announced, uh, they announced number 77, Anthony Munoz at one tackle for USC. And I think a lot of people scratched their head thinking, who in the heck is this guy? And we haven't seen him all year, but uh, you know, to play in the entire game, I think I, I have to be honest, I think I took two plays off because I was almost hyperventilating. I was so excited about being in the game. And uh, we had another pretty good offensive lineman come in and spell me for two plays. He was a freshman at the time. Pro Football Hall of Famer Bruce Matthews came in. He was a freshman. But then I went back in, and we were down, and we had to go over 80 yards that last drive to beat Ohio State. And it was – we didn't. I don't think we passed the ball once. We just pounded it, ran it, and then Charles White, who uh, – as you said, the late, great Charles White, amazing, still the all-time leading rusher at USC. When you mention that, people are like, are you serious? Yep, the all-time leading rusher at USC still goes over. We win the game 17-16. And, you know, again, that was a highlight for what I went through that year, two series and then play the entire Rose Bowl game. Uh, that was uh, kind of a – it just really helped out that whole four years of adversity to play in that one game. And, it, it, I could say it almost was like it erased all that, but it really didn't. But at that time, after we scored in the locker room, it was like I forgot about all the, you know, the rehab hours, all the, the time in the hospital because we had, you know, we had just beat the number one team in the country. Yeah, time of the hospital, again, often injured in your career. But then you get drafted third overall by the Bengals. Did you think you were going to go that high and even get drafted at all because of, uh, again, the injuries that you had and maybe the, the risk that you were? Well, after that Rose Bowl, all I wanted was a chance to go to an NFL camp to see if I could compete. I knew physically I was back strength-wise and because I'd played the whole game and I didn't feel that that third knee operation affected me. But then I had to – it was in the hands of the NFL teams. You know, all the experts, all the pundits said that before that senior year, maybe a top-five pick, after that, he'd be lucky to get signed as a free agent. 
And they were saying, well, what a great way to finish a, a college career, a football career to play in the Rose Bowl. Now it's time to move on and do something else. But, you know, I continue to bust it there at USC with my buddies and finish school and, you know, just uh, do what I did for four years in the weight room with our strength coach. And hopefully somebody would take a chance. So I really, Mike, I didn't know what was going to happen uh, because, like I said, the experts were saying now, but I was saying all it takes is one team. And, of course, the Bengals had the third pick. You know, not in my wildest dreams that I think the Bengals would take me with the third pick. Uh, but you know what? When that phone call came that morning, April 29th, 1980, I mean, I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. Maybe they got the wrong number, but no. <laughs> the, head, uh, the head line coach got on, the, and I'd met him in January. Yeah, he said, you're our guy. We just drafted you. So I hung up the phone. I looked at my wife. We were in our one-bedroom apartment and, you know, just started to weep a little bit because I was just overwhelmed. After I kind of composed myself, I told my wife, we're going to Cincinnati. And we both knew there was a third pick, but we also looked at each other and said, where in the heck is Cincinnati? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thankful now because we know exactly where Cincinnati is. It's been home for 42 years now, four going on 43. And I th I'm thankful for Paul Brown, Mike Brown, Pete Brown, the Brown family, that they watched that Rose Bowl January 1st as we beat Ohio State. And they felt confident enough to draft me. And uh, so they drafted me, and my job was to, to make sure that, uh, that uh, I proved them right by their draft pick because I know a lot of fans were probably scratching their head, saying, what the heck are you guys doing? And uh, so I wanted to make sure every time I put that uniform on uh, at practice and on Sunday I was there, and I missed my first game, my 11th year, week 15, my 11th year, when I got hit from behind uh, by a linebacker, dislocated my left elbow, uh, came back and played. But, uh, yeah, so that was one of the things that I would – you know, after only playing one healthy year, I'd played uh, almost 11 straight seasons without missing a game. And I just wanted to make sure that the Brown family knew that they had made the right decision. Yeah, you missed, what, just three games in, in 12 seasons? Yeah. I mean, how, going from college to high school, again, all the injuries you had in, in, in college or to, to the NFL here, how did things change physically for you? How did you stay healthy? How did you make sure that you were on the field all those games? Well, I think I look at the three times I got hurt in college. And every time I had a 300-pound lineman falling on my leg when I was planted, I was turning the corner and somebody I had a defensive back put his helmet in my thigh when I was jumping over a pile. So, you know, again, you can say wrong place at the wrong time. But I was determined through my, my, my physical conditioning. I was a guy that ran year-round. Um, I ran in the offseason. I might take a day off after my last game, if that much, and I'd continue running distance and sprints during the season, Tuesday and Friday, I'd run Monday, Tuesday and Friday, I'd run some distance in addition to, you know, practicing, getting ready for the game. My, my strength condition, I was a weight guy, you know, three, four days a week year round. So that was my way of saying, okay, I'm not going to finish the season, take a month, get out of shape and then try to get, but I'm just going to continue to stay in shape. And that's one thing I did. Uh, you know, for all 13 years, I, I, I trained year round and I really believe that that's what kept me on the field every game. And, you know, maybe it wasn't the case, but that's what I believed uh, happened. And and it was, you know, that's one thing that I did. I just uh, if I'd go on vacation in the off season with my wife and kids, one of the first things I would do is I'd find a, a, a weight room, a, a fitness center, and I would find somewhere to run. And I would take care of that for a couple hours a day. Then I had the rest of the day with my family to vacation. But yeah, so I did that. Anytime I'd hit the road, it was uh, I would find a place that I that I'd have to you know weight train and run, and uh, I didn't take a day off. So 
I, I believe that's what that was the key to me playing all those years without missing very many games. Well, certainly, again, paid off for you, paid off for the Bengals as well. The Bengals coming back to the fold now in the NFL and in, in making playoffs and playing for the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. But but back when you played, you guys played in a couple of Super Bowls. Let's talk about those, if you will, starting with the, the 1981 season, uh, Super Bowl 16. Going into that year, what was it like around the franchise? And, and did you think this team had the makings to get to the Super Bowl? Well, you look at both Super Bowls, we're kind of like bad years to Super Bowl. My second year, my freshman or rookie year, we were six and ten as my rookie year with the Bengals. The two previous years at the Bengals, 78, 70, they were four and twelve, two years in a row. They bring in Forrest Greg. Even though we're six and ten my rookie year, we could have very easily been ten and six. We lost several games late in the game. But then I can see things kind of changing. So going to my second year, not a bad first half. We're five and three. But then the month of November, we're five and zero. Oh. We go from five and three to ten and three. I said, we're starting to build something special here. And then, of course, we got home field advantage. We end up uh, you know, beating San Diego in the coldest game on record, the Freezer Bowl, going to Pontiac, Michigan, losing to the 49ers. Uh, so 81 season, 82. And I don't think anybody expected neither one of the teams, the 49ers or the Bengals, first time both of us were at the Super Bowl. And then I thought, heck, man, we got a pretty good team. This is going to be a, you know annual occurrence. Well, it didn't happen until the 88 season, uh, you know, again, the previous year we were four and eleven. It was a strike year, uh, you know, work stoppage. We, you know, uh, so we didn't do very well. Then we come back, eighty-eight season, the same thing. We end up twelve and four, home field advantage, get all our playoff games at home. We beat Buffalo in the AFC Championship. Now we're going to twenty-three down in Miami. The only bad thing is we're playing the 49ers again with Joe Montana. So, uh, but both games were great games, uh, decided by a goal line stand in sixteen and a drive in eight. In uh, 23, the 92-yard drive by Montana and his team. Uh, so, like I said, the previous year to both those Super Bowls, terrible years. And so I guess going into those uh, 81 season, 88 season, not a lot of people gave us uh, a chance to go to the Super Bowl. But I could see that these teams were transformed and we really came together both those years. So, uh, you know, I'm thankful that I had a chance to play in two. Would I have loved to, to win one or both? Oh, you betcha. Uh, probably one of the most competitive people on this earth I am, but we didn't. So uh, you move on and, uh, you know, you're just you're thankful that you had that opportunity to play in two. As you mentioned, Joe Montana, he was Tom Brady before Tom Brady, right? He was the guy that yeah. was winning those championships. Yeah. Was it just, the, oh, boy, here we go again. It's it's a Montana led team that you had to play in those Super Bowls. Was it just bad timing? You know what? I, I didn't really feel I don't think we felt that way either one because we had confidence that we could win the game. And I. I think our team, we were very capable of winning it. Uh, you know, there was just a couple incidents. You know, the first game, it was his defense that ended up. They didn't do a whole lot the second half. They scored six points the second half. But it was their defense that stopped it. We were rolling. The second game, I mean, you know, their defense uh, did a good job. They moved the ball well, but it was Joe Montana in that offense. You know, they drove 92 yards with, you know, maybe three minutes, under three minutes. So, yeah, so – but. You know, going to the game, we knew it's a Super Bowl. I mean, it's the last two teams, so you know it's going to be tough. But it wasn't like, oh, my goodness, we, we could have drawn somebody else besides Montana. That, that wasn't the uh, sentiment for our team. We were just like – we were confident. We believed we could win the game. And you say you just got back from the Super Bowl. So you played in the 80s, in 1982, 1989 Super Bowls. How has it changed? How has it become such a, a spectacle that it is right now? Well, now it's kind of like, you know, you go all week and, I mean, every kind of event, they say, oh, by the way, there's a game on Sunday in there. <laughs> it's like, 
you know, the, the, it's so the, I mean, there's so many people that come to the city of the game that don't even go to the game because of all the events. I mean, you can go to an event every night. There's multiple events all night and the media coverage and the, it's just amazing what happens in the city of the Super Bowl. And then, like I said, Oh, by the way, the biggest game of the year is being played. So that's, that's the thing. And there's so many, you know, outlets that cover the game. Uh, you know, uh, it, I can't even begin to tell you, I mean, radio row is so much bigger or the number of publications, you know, the, the networks and the, the other, you know, people that are covering it, just, it's just grown so much, so much money is being spent on what's happening Super Bowl week. And in those two runs, you mentioned your two coaches. Well, you mentioned Forrest Gregg. He played for Lombardi. He was your coach back in 1982, that, that Super Bowl. And then Sam Weish, your, your, your head coach. I would think those two are, are different personalities. How do you do you compare the two at all? Do you think about those two and, and what they were like as your coaches with the Bengals? Uh, there's no question about it. The, the sad thing is we've lost both of them. I love both guys. I love playing for both guys. Like you said, totally different personalities, to totally different styles. You know, Forrest Gregg was kind of like the ultimate CEO where he had his two coordinators. They ran the offense. They ran the defense. He ran the team. Uh, he set the plan in place, and he was a no-nonsense guy. He treated the starting quarterback the same way he uh, treated the, the backup center. You know, so you knew you were all on the same page. A disciplinarian, where Sam Weiss, on the other hand, he was a brilliant offensive mind. He was so integral, part, very important part of the offense. You know, we had an offensive coordinator, but you could say that there were co-coordinators, and Sam uh, ran the offense, let LeBeau and Bola run the defense. Um, you know, and he was a little more relaxed type of guy. First time I'd experienced Wednesday practice installation day in a in, in a helmet and sweats. I'd never experienced that before under Forrest Gregg. It was always full pads, uh, but it was a new era. Things were changing. But uh, both guys were amazing. I, like I said, not only did I love both of them as coaches, but as, as men, I love both guys. Uh, close, close with both. Uh, loved them both. And uh, you know, it, they did a tremendous job while they were coaching and while they were here. Also with those two teams, two different quarterbacks, it was Ken Anderson the first time, Boomer Esiason the second time. What was the difference for those two as, as you block for them and, and, and see what they're doing behind you? Well, again, to, two different personalities, two different styles. You know, Kenny Anderson was more the, I mean, one of the most accurate all-time passers. Both of them were brilliantly smart. You know, Kenny Anderson, smart, Boomer, smart, both competitive, where Boomer was a little more out front competitive, you know, more of a bigger personality than Kenny Anderson. But Kenny Anderson led, you know, by example and what he was doing on the field. So to really basically play for two head coaches and two quarterbacks in 13 years, so fortunate. One offensive line coach in 13 years. So very much stable in the, the key positions. But, uh, you know, both those head coaches, uh, I'm very thankful that I experienced them as coaches and as friends. And uh, I'll never forget the experiences I had with both. Got to ask you about Icky Woods and the sensation that, that he became. What was it like being around him and uh, certainly that time during the, the Icky shuffle? Well, it was amazing because it was his rookie year. He came in from UNLV uh, and he, I mean, over a thousand yards rushing. The guy had speed, power. Uh, we, you know, we... You know, a lot of things are made about the zone blocking scheme, but that's all we ran my time out here with the Bengals. And uh, we had Icky Woods, James Brooks, and Icky ran it so well. Uh, and then, of course, uh, 
you know, the icky shuffle started and uh, became a phenomenon to the point where Paul Brown actually was doing the icky shuffle at one time in a press conference. To get Paul Brown to do the, the icky shuffle was huge. But, uh, yeah, Icky's still in town here. There's a lot of guys I played with that are still in town here. But I wish his career could have lasted longer. But it was shortened because of injuries. A lot of guys, you know, that played in this league, they, they go through injury. Uh, I would have loved to block, you know, instead of one great year, I would have loved to have been up front uh, a multiple uh, handful of years for Icky, but it didn't work out. But that one year that he lit the league on fire, not only with over 1,000 yards, but the Icky shuffle and going to the Super Bowl, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, for you, a 12-year career, again, the the injuries that you had in college, I mean, that's a long career, especially for an offensive lineman, very physical position where injuries occur a lot. I mean, did it amaze you that you had as long a career that you did have? Well, you know, it actually was 13 that I played. Um, but, no, it, you know, to me it was like I I felt if I stayed on top of me, my body physically and took care of it that I could play. And, uh, and I – you know, one of the things I said to myself is when I drove down to practice, when I got to a point when I felt like I was going to work, I thought that was time to give it up. And that last year, my thir 13th year, I felt like I was going to work because I loved everything about the game. You know, I loved the training. I loved practice. I loved the game. And it just felt like I was going to work. But, uh, you know, I I think the last couple years maybe, but I felt like, you know, when things, my ninth, 10th year, I still felt great. My 11th. You know, because of the condition, I come into camp and I felt like I could run all day. Of course, you get banged up a little bit. Your shoulders start get banging up. So, you know, the strength is compromised a little bit. But uh, even that last year, I was probably in the best shape cardiovascular that I was in the previous five or six. But, you know, I think, again, if you stay on top of your conditioning, weight training, uh, I think that's the key to longevity. How about some of the tough matchups or, or guys that you like going up against? Was there a lot of trash talking in the trenches during yeah. those days? I can probably say out of 13 years, maybe one guy that trash talked. Uh, if there was any communication, it was all in fun on the bottom, bottom of a pile. But, uh, you know, most of the guys I played against were intense, you know, tried to be physical, and that's what I love. Uh, like I said, less than a handful of guys would talk, and I would just kind of wink at them and smile and ignore them, and I think that would get them upset because I wouldn't get involved in that, that type of uh, banter back and forth. But, uh, yeah, I didn't see, you know, at least in my position, I didn't see a whole lot of guys. Tackle eligible plays. Uh, you've had seven receptions, 18 yards, but four touchdowns. Do, do you remember each of those touchdowns? Uh, like they happened yesterday, the first one up in Cleveland. Well, I was very surprised that Sam Weiss called it because it was uh, first and goal, with the, the one with seven seconds, no timeout. First weekend put that play in for me to be an eligible receiver. And I'm thinking this rookie coach didn't want to coach in the NFL uh, that long if he's calling a, a pass play to a tackle. But it worked out. I caught it. Extra point. We went in overtime. And Jim Breach, uh, nine for nine, his career in overtime. We beat the Browns. Uh, you know, uh, Houston, a couple, Seattle. So, yeah, I remember them all. I remember uh, different situations. I remember a couple situations where I did catch it that I got a couple pass interference calls. Uh, in uh, one time, we're in the Astrodome, and I was to hit the end and go to the pie line. And we snapped the ball, and but there was a, a whistle. So I ran blocked my guy. I hooked him like I was run blocking. And Bruce Coslett up in the press box saw that. He saw that I didn't give it away, so we called the same play. I hit the guy, went, and we caught it. So, you know, just kind of thinking fast on your feet helped out with a couple of them. I was in the corner, the back of the end zone, and there's no way Boomer could get the ball, so he threw it up high. I jumped up. I felt the linebacker on my back, so I stopped, and the guy ran over my back, and we got a pass interference, and we got to run it again. So yeah, I think those two uh, probably 
uh, were as thrilling as catching the touchdown because I got a chance to to do it again after uh, a, a, you know they jumped off sides and after a pass interference call. So, but yeah, I remember all four Boomer Sison. I got all four uh, balls painted with the dates and the score. So yeah, I, I remember them like they happened yesterday. So you're at the goal line after you get those touchdowns. Do you always say, okay, I'm a good option? You know, did you go to Sam Weiss and say, I'm open? I'm I'm open. open. <laughs> no, you know, too much to going on. But uh, but when they call it, you think you better catch it or they won't call it again. So <laughs> it was fun. As you said, a tremendous career at the Bengals. You, you go to camp, I guess, with, with Tampa Bay. Um, what, what was that like? Well, you know, going from the Bengals, that the entire career there trying to, you know, restart it at, at somewhere else. Well, the, the thing, the only reason I did is Sam Weiss was there. Uh, there were several teams that had called me, but Sam Weiss had the same offense we were running in Cincinnati. Uh, the offensive line coach in Tampa, Bob Wiley, and my coach, Jim McNally, were close friends. He was teaching everything that I was taught for 13 years. So it gave me a chance to go down there with some very young offensive linemen and just to get a chance to, to try something else. And uh, they had talked about another position. I was a left tackle for 13 years. They were talking right tackle, maybe left guard. Uh, my last year at the Bengals, I volunteered and I played one game at left guard and I was pretty comfortable having a guy on each side. So when he mentioned maybe playing left guard next to Paul Gruber, I said, that might be a good idea. That might extend the career another three, four years. But I just wanted one year to see some. But it uh, it ended, uh, you know, quickly. The last preseason game, making a tackle uh, in a preseason game, tore my shoulder up. And I thought, you know, it's time. It's time to move on. Clear enough picture. So uh, went in uh, and finished it up. Yeah, I guess it made it, like as you said, very clear for you that it was a time to hang things up and, and retire. But at the same time, was it difficult to to do that? Oh, it's well, you do something for over 20 years. And that's why I just kind of chuckle when somebody retires and then they unretire. People don't understand as a golfer, you can retire. But then 10 years later, you can go out and play with your grandson, basketball player and go shoot basketball. Football player, you retire, you can't wait five years and then put the pads on again and go in the backyard and do some one-on-one. You know, it's it's over. So, uh, you know, I just wanted to experience it. So, I, guys, uh, I tell guys, make sure you're completely sure, and it's beyond a shadow of a doubt, when you retire, because when it's over, it's over. You got to move on. So, I can say even the career I had, the number of years, the accolades, the two Super Bowls, the playoffs, the Pro Bowls, it's still tough because you've done it for over 20 years. But it doesn't take long to get over it. Yeah, nine-time All-Pro, first team, two-time second team, 11 Pro Bowls, 1980s All-Decade team, 75th anniversary team, 100th anniversary team. And in 1998, you get the call to the Hall of Fame. What was that like? Tell us, you know, take us through that moment when you found out you were going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Well, it's crazy just to talk about being up for the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, I'm thinking Deacon Jones, Bart Starr, Merlin Olson, Jim Brown. Those are Hall of Famers. I played in the league. And it's like, but um, you know, when that's, that talk started, uh, I'm, this would be my 25th year in, and I still pinch myself every time I go up to Canton and I'm around all the other Hall of Famers because, you know, because of what I went through. We've talked about what I went through with my college career and the lack of playing time and stuff. Um, so, you know, to be in, and when I got that word, it was just like overwhelming, humbling. Uh, thrilling and uh, to know that I'm going to be on the same team with all these other guys forever. It just, it never gets old. Uh, and like I said, I never stop pinching myself. And it's great to be a first as well. You're the first exclusive Bengal enshrined in, in Canton, Ohio as well. What does that mean to you? 
Well, it means a lot, but when you after it happens, you want other teammates. I mean, we got guys that are, you know, that have the credentials to be in. And we finally this year, Kenny Riley's joining me. Uh, so hopefully, as the years go on, the next year or two, we get some more. But you know, it's nice to be the first, but uh, I don't want I didn't want it to be the only one. You know, because you look around, there's teams with 20 guys, there's teams with 30 guys, there's teams with 10 guys, and here we sat at one person, where I know we've had several that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame, and. And we finally get one this year. And Kenny Riley, who's amazing, it's just sad that he's not here with us to experience it. But his son, his family, his wife will get to experience in August. And I'm thankful for that. Pro Football Hall of Fame, great honor. Uh, NFL Man of the Year in 1991 as well. I would think that uh, has to rank up there with with different things that that you've been honored with. What does something like that mean to you? And, and the contributions that you know you've made in your community to earn something like that? Well, first of all, now they renamed it the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year. And to carry that name and to have received that award, you know, you get a lot of accolades for your you know, performance on the field. But this is something that has to do with who you are in your family, in the community, off the field, in addition as a player. So that means so much more. It's because you're not, you're not a, uh, you know, you're a total person as far as I see it in the, uh, when I received that, it was a great honor. And to be one of the many that have received, I look at the list, and to be in that fraternity is amazing too. And uh, so I'm thankful for that. And uh, it, I mean, to me, it's it's very, very, very important uh, award that sits up in my family room with all the other accolades. And having heard you here, it seems like that award is something that, you know, is a product of your mom and, and what she does or did for you in, in helping raise you. You know, is that what you think of who you think of in a, an award like that? And even what you're doing now with your foundation? Well, you know, a lot of people say pay, pay it forward, but I think it, it honors those like my mom, like my, my coaches and teachers that poured into my life. You know, it's one thing to pay it forward, but it's another thing to honor them. And I, I agree with that. It's the things that you were taught as a young man, things that you were taught in athletics by teachers in the classroom uh, and the accumulation of all that. So I'm thankful for my mom that she, uh, she did what she did for five kids and then the coaches and teachers that I have been exposed to. Again, let's talk about the, your foundation here for a moment, the Anthony Munoz foundation. What do you do with that? How, how are you still helping give back in, in the Cincinnati community? Well, it's 22 years this is our 22nd year, Mike. Uh, we engage the tri-state area to impact young people mentally, physically, and spiritually. We have eight programs and we continue to roll everything uh, from mentoring programs with elementary kids, junior high kids, overnight character camps with junior high young men. We have a, a, a youth leadership seminar. We were getting back to our numbers uh, that we had pre-COVID. Uh, we just had, I think, 70 some high schools, full day event. Uh, we have uh, a one day camp where we have young ladies involved, where we teach them character and, and teamwork, but also a little bit of football. And then we have two types of scholarships for seniors going to college. We have a straight A, which is a one-time two to $5,000 scholarship, straight A's academics, athletics, attitude, achievement, but a big criteria is coming over, overcoming adversity. Then we have our big scholarship, uh, scholarship fund scholarship, which is a $20,000 scholarship. So, you know, with those eight programs, I figure we touch probably 25 to 3,000 young people uh, a year that we get to work with. And this is our, uh, you know, our 22nd year, like I said. So it's a passion of mine. I have a great staff, a great board, a great corporate partners, and a great, uh, database of volunteers so uh, we'll keep rolling how much longer i don't know i'm getting a little older now but there's still a passion of mine how much is it of you know what you do on a, on a daily basis working with this foundation well it's quite a bit uh 
this past summer, I, you know, there was a new job created at the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I went through the interviewing process, and I got offered the job, so I'm the Chief Football Relationship Relationship Officer of the Hall of Fame. So I'm doing that part time. I got, uh, you know, I got the foundation. Of course, my wife and I are getting ready to celebrate 45 years of marriage, so we got our time. We got nine grand grandkids. So other than that, uh, you know, I just kind of sit around wondering what I'm going to do every day. But <laughs> it's uh, the foundation is a passion of mine. It's something that I, I, I stay engaged with, with my staff and partners. And I'm still I'm here in the office and we're getting ready for events. So you know, I'm confirming things and uh, making decisions on uh, things that my great staff uh, puts together. So uh, it's still a, you know, it's still a thing when I'm in town. I, I'm still very engaged. Well, 45 years. Congratulations on that. As you said, you got married in 78 during your your playing career at uh, USC. Can, can you elaborate more on your role with the NFL, the the the, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame and, and what you do in that role? Well, it's actually the Pro Football Hall of Fame. A lot of people call it the NFL Hall of Fame, but it's a separate entity. Uh, we're not tied to the NFL, but they do support it. They're like our big brother. So they give us a lot of support. Uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame, uh, like I said, it's all about relationships. I'm working directly with our new president, Jim Porter. We've been traveling around, meeting a lot of the NFL owners, corporate partners, uh, you know, non-for-profits. So it's, it's, it's a relational uh, job, things I've been doing for the last 20, 25 years here in Cincinnati. Now I just get to – I get to really represent everything that I love about the Hall of Fame, my fellow Hall of Famers, the staff, the board, uh, the city of Canton, and I'm thrilled. So – uh, anything to do with relationships, media, sponsorship, I'm there trying to help out. We, we were uh, pleased to have another Hall of Famer, Walter Jones, on not too long ago. And, and, and your name came up when we talked to him. And he said he doesn't get starstruck much. But when he met you for the first time, he, he did. What does that mean to hear something like that with a fellow Hall of Famer and, and maybe the impact you've had on them? Well, you know, it means that we're doing something right. And uh, hopefully we're, we're doing things that the younger generations can follow. And, uh, you know, for me, I had guys prior to me, Art Shell, Forrest Gregg. You know, now you got Walter talking about, you know, I know the first time I met him, he had watched videos that we had put together, um, you know. And, and the cool thing about it now, he just got to do, uh, you know, one of the new Hall of Famers going in this year is Joe Thomas. for the Cle And Walter Jones with Joe's guy. So it's kind of like, you know. Now, Joe, you know, it was like me and then Walter watched me. Now, you know, Joe Thomas watched Walter. So that that's the great thing about it is the generations uh, watch each other. And, and it's a, a real thrill when Walter shared that with me and to hear that about Walter. Can't let you go without talking about the finger. <laughs> tell, tell us about that injury, how that happened. And uh... Uh, that was an accumulation over the years. It doesn't hurt. I can still make a fist. I can still lift things. I can still go grab the golf course. So why, why go through another surgery? It makes for a great conversation piece. You wouldn't ask me anything about it if it was straight and right. If it was straight, like, right. This. right. But no, it, it like the main thing is it doesn't hurt. And uh, if I had it fused, it, I wouldn't be able to make, it would just kind of stick out there straight and I can still do the things I need to do with it. So uh, it's all good. Doesn't look very nice, but it's still good. Still works. With, with nine grandkids, what do they think about that? That's going to oh, be a cool trick, sure. right? They're used to it. They just still kind of look at it, and, and but they're 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 good with it. Before we let you go, how can people follow you? How can they again get some more information on your foundation? Maybe get involved with that as well. Yeah, so MunozFoundation.org is our website for our foundation. You can learn everything about it. I'm on Twitter at Munoz at Anthony Munoz HOF. Uh, but uh, yeah, so come to our website and see uh, see what we do, and uh, you know. We can use all the help we had, we can get touching those uh, 
a lot of those young people that we do every year. So, uh, Mike, thank you so much. This was great. Appreciate it. I appreciate your time. And again, you're doing great work. And again, I'm, I know your mom is certainly proud of the man you become. And, and again, what you're doing in your community. Can't thank you enough for spending a little time with us well, here today. Wow, great to have another Pro Football Hall of Famer join us here today, Anthony Munoz, great guest. And our thanks to Kristen Johnson with the Anthony Munoz Foundation for helping arrange that. Good story, great stuff. Again, we appreciate his time here today. We appreciate your time for watching, listening, and again, we remind you to subscribe to our podcast and also check out CLNS Media Network, other great podcasts out there as well to enjoy. Well, we'll see you next time. Another great edition, another great guest comes your way very soon. It is In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Have a great day, everybody.